0: Shalom. This is Reverend John Ferret, and I welcome you to again the video series. I call it the Vidcast series. That's entitled Hanukkah: The Return of the King, and we're now on Candle Four. And as you know, what I really like to do uh, before we start the actual lesson is to do a blessing. And just as in Jesus's day. We will thank God and bless him for his word that he has given to us. For it says in his word that his word is the living bread. The written word is the living bread of life. And then came the living word, Jesus, who is the living bread from heaven. Hallelujah. If you'd like, please repeat after me the Hebrew. Baruch Ata Aronai. Elohimu Melech Haholam. Ashir Bakar Banu Mikol Hahamin. Veinatanlanu Et Toroto. Vein Evoin Atovin. Veinatanlanu Et Habasora Mashiach Yeshua. Veinatanlanu Et Habrit Hadasha. Baruch Atah Adonai. Noten Hadeverei, Amen. And in English, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King in the universe, who has chosen us from all people, and given us His Torah, and the good prophets, and given us the good news of Messiah Jesus, and given us the new covenant. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the words of truth. Return to Jerusalem to around 170 BC. And this is the time of those events in the revolt of the Maccabees. One thing I wanted to bring up is there is a historical novel by a pastor Carlson, and it's called The Maccabee. And I highly recommend this book. I think. You might be able to find some copies at Amazon. Uh, you might be able to find some copies at Thrift Books, maybe some other places. But if you wanted to read an exciting novel um, based upon these events, based upon that first Hanukkah, if you would, uh, you've got to get this book. He is a Christian pastor out east, and he is a uh Uh, A Bible historian just like me, and I think you'd really enjoy the book. So, we want to go back again to 170 BC, around that time, going back to the streets of Jerusalem, going back to the city of God, the city that God chose for the place of his dwelling. So, in Jerusalem, they're under the pagan Greeks. It's almost totally a pagan city at this time. Many Jews are turning from God, and they're immersing themselves in the Hellenistic pagan culture. And we remember the priest, Mathathias, back in the village of Modin. Modin is about 20 miles, basically, west of Jerusalem, and we remember as a devout man of God, a devout Jew, that he was deeply saddened by what he was seeing based upon how his nation was coming apart based upon the seductive and immoral draw of Hellenism that had fallen upon Israel and upon the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we see Mattathias speaking to a number of people. And prior to the revolution, prior to that time, perhaps that happened in the synagogue at Modin, we read this. And this is from 1 Maccabees, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. At this time, a certain Mattathias, son of John, son of Simkon, appeared on the scene. He was a priest of the Yaraiv family from Jerusalem, who had settled at Modin. Matthathias had five sons, John called Gadis. Simon called Thassis, Judas called Maccabeus, Eleazar called Avaran, and Jonathan called Afus. When Matthias saw the sacrilegious acts committed in Judea and Jerusalem, he said, oh, why was I born to see this, the crushing of my people, the ruin of the holy city? They set Ali by when it was surrendered, when the holy place was given up to the alien. Her temple, Jerusalem's temple, is like a man robbed of honor. Its glorious vessels are carried off as spoil. Her infants are slain in the streets, her young men by the sword of the foe. Is there a nation that has not usurped her sovereignty? A people that has not plundered here? She has been stripped of all her adornment, no longer free, but a slave. Now that we have seen our temple with all its beauty and splendor laid waste and profaned by the Gentiles, this was already, Matthias is already talking about what happened on the 25th of Kislev, when Antiochus IV Epiphanes turned God's house, his temple in Jerusalem, into a pagan temple. And Matthathias says, why should we live any longer? So Matthathias and his sons tore their garments, put on sackcloth, and mourned bitterly. And later, we don't know whether it's weeks or a month later, or even a day later, the revolt of the Maccabees starts, perhaps in that synagogue in Moldin. The revolt that starts with Mattathias and ends at Hanukkah in Jerusalem when Judas had defeated the pagan Seleucid Greek kingdom of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, reclaimed the temple and cleaned it according to the Torah. And for us, we're seeing some amazing connections. It's as if the Lord is using those events of the revolt, the events of the revolt of the Maccabees in those evil and dark days, and he's using it to teach his disciples, and therefore us, once we try to understand how his disciples understood his word, but he's teaching about the days prior to his return. The, day, the days prior to the coming of the king. He was teaching his disciples, and it was on the Mount of Olives. We call it the Mount of Olives discourse. And I go to Matthew 24, and starting in verse 1, we read, Jesus was leaving the temple when his disciples came and pointed to the temple buildings he answered, he answered, yes, look at it all. I tell you that not one stone will be left upon another till all will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to speak to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the signal for your coming and the end of the age? And they're asking him about the return of the king. Jesus, when are you coming back? Jesus replied, take care that no one misleads you for many will come claiming my my name and saying I'm the Messiah and many will be misled by them. The time is coming when you will hear the noise of battle near at hand and the news of battles far away. See that you are not alarmed. Such things are bound to happen, but the end is still to come. For nation will make war upon nation, kingdom upon kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many places. But with all these things, the birth pangs of the new age begin. You will then be handed over for punishment and execution. Now that's kind of a first indication with regards to a connection between those days in Israel under King Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, The Jews who held firm to their faith were imprisoned, tortured, and martyred. And men of all nations will hate you for your allegiance to me. Many will fall from their faith. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. For most part, the city was devastated by paganism. They will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And as lawlessness spreads, men's love for one another will grow cold. Lawlessness spreads. The implication there is Torahlessness. Men are turning away from God's word. For them, back then, this is going to be the early second century BC. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And the foundation of their scriptures was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so, indeed, what Jesus is talking about is people talking uh, turning away. From God's word turning away from Torah, his instruction on how to live righteously before God. But the man who holds out to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation, and that was for Ken the one, because King Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes he transformed. God's temple into a pagan temple, and they called it the abomination of desolation, of which the prophet Daniel spoke, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must take to the hills. And that's exactly what happened in the books of Maccabees. Matthias had slain that fellow citizen of Moldean who was going to sacrifice on the altar to Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes. Mathathias couldn't take it. His rage just surfaced. He grabbed the sword of a Greek soldier, killed that man, and then they killed whatever Greek soldiers were there as well. And so began the revolt, and they fled to the hills. If a man is on the roof, he must not come down to fetch his goods from the house. If in the field, he must not turn back for his coat. And that's exactly... The next thing, we read in the book of Maccabees that they fled to the hills and did not take anything with them. They did not go back to their homes. And here's Jesus saying the exact same thing. Now, his disciples got it. The book of 1 Maccabees and the book of Second Maccabees, both are written, probably separate authors, but both are written about 125 B.C., These books were available in Jesus's day, so they knew their history. The connection was obvious to them, but it wasn't obvious to to us. So we need to hear Jesus's words the way his disciples heard his words. We need to understand his words the way They understood his words then, the way they heard his words then. And as a result, our teacher, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says he would come and teach us the rest. The Holy Spirit will come, God himself, and Ruach HaKodesh will enhance and expand our understanding now because we reconnected to disciples in their understanding then. So what's next? What was happening in those days? And how is it that Jesus is going to again take those events and relate it to his return? So again, Jesus is teaching them then, so we can better understand here, now. Come on, let's go see. So let us return to the books of the Maccabees. We're going to be taking a look at First Maccabees chapter 1, verses 41 through 50. And I've put up that picture that I used in video one of a cartoon drawing of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and abandon their particular customs. All the Gentiles conformed to the command of the king, and many Israelites delighted in his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. In other words, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes basically said no more practice of Torah, no more practice of Judaism. No more circumcision. No more going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. No owning Torah scrolls. And the king sent letters by messenger to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, ordering them to follow customs foreign to the land. What customs? One of the things that happened is Greek theater. Now, this is a model of a Roman theater that probably was in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. A Greek theater would not have that wall that you see that's obviously lit up by the sun. A Greek theater, um, basically in the same shape, would be open in front. And so it's very likely that there was a Greek theater in the times of the Maccabees. And the plays were very erotic, very immoral, very X-rated. On top of that, what else? There would have been an arena For wrestling, for discus throwing, and for the games was actually built very near the temple. And you can see the steps there on the upper right of the entrance into the temple on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. They now call it Robinson's Arch, uh, according to the archaeologist Robinson, who discovered it. But here, when we go into 2 Maccabees chapter 4, starting in verse 12, we read with great enthusiasm, he meaning Jason, the Hellenistic, sellout Jew, high priest. He was the brother of the true high priest who actually had his brother, the true high priest, kicked out. He bought the high priestly office from Antiochus, and he, as it says, built a stadium near the Temple Hill and let our finest young men, meaning Jews, to adopt the Greek custom of participating athletic events. Matter of fact, the young men assimilated into the Greek culture that they went to hospitals to actually have their circumcision reversed. Because you see, the games were done in the nude. Because of the unrivaled wickedness of Jason, the ungodly and illegitimate high priest, the craze for the greek way of life and for foreign customs reached such a point that even the priests lost all interest in their sacred duties they lost interest in the temple services and neglected the sacrifices just as soon as a signal was given they would rush off to take part in the games and were forbidden by the law they did not care about anything their ancestors had valued they praised only they prized only greek honors So to prohibit burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and feast days, to desecrate the sanctuary and the sacred ministers, to build pagan altars and temples and shrines. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes renamed the temple to Olympus Zeus and installed more than likely a a, uh, small shrine to Zeus inside the temple of God. And there they were to sacrifice swine and unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised and to defile themselves with every kind of impurity and abomination so that they might forget the law and change all its ordinances. Whoever refused to act according to the command of the king was put to death. And you guys, this is where I want to focus about the brave people did not turn from God, but said we will not give up on God, we're not going to give up on our life, we're not going to give up on following the instruction of God in our life. So we take a look here at First Maccabees chapter 1, verses 57 through 62, and everyone with whom the books of the testament of the Lord were found, and who whosoever observed the law of the Lord, they put to death. If you owned a Torah scroll or were hiding a Torah scroll and they found it, you were going to die. Now the women that circumcised their children were slain according to the commandment of King Antiochus. And they hanged the children about their neck and all their houses. And those that had circumcised them, they put to death. Moms, amazing courage. They would not give up their faith, and they and their baby sons were martyred. There is an account in 2 Maccabees chapter 7 that I really want to focus in right now. The rabbis called her Hannah, though we don't know what her name is. So when you go into 2nd Maccabees chapter seven, we read the story about the mother and her seven sons. And like I said, the rabbis have named her Hannah. So starting in verse one, on another occasion, a Jewish mother and her seven sons were arrested. The king was having them beaten to force them to eat pork. Then one of the young men said, "What of the the brothers, one of the sons of Hannah, what do you hope to gain by doing this? We would rather die than abandon the traditions of our ancestors. This made the king so furious that he gave orders for huge pans and kettles to be heated red hot, and it was done immediately. Then he told his men to cut off the tongue of the one who had spoken and to scalp him and chop off his hands and feet while his mother and his six brothers looked on. After the young man had been reduced to a helpless mass of breathing flesh, the king gave orders for him to be carried over and thrown into one of the pans. As a cloud of smoke streamed up from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die bravely, saying, the Lord God is looking on and understands our suffering. Moses made this clear when he wrote a song condemning those who had abandoned the Lord. He said, the Lord will have mercy on those who serve him. And the first brother had died in this way. The soldiers started amusing themselves with the second one by tearing the hair and skin from his head. Then they asked him, now will you eat this pork? Or do you want us to chop off your hands and feet one by one? And he replied in his nev- native language. That means he's talking in Hebrew. I will never eat it. So the soldiers tortured him just as they had the first one. But with his dying breath, he cried out to the king, you butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his laws. Um, I just want you to highlight And focus in on that last sentence. You may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us up from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed the laws. The Jewish people believe that God is the king of the universe, and they already believed that they would be raised from the dead. Sounds like the Christian gospel. And the Jewish people were already prepared for Jesus's coming, which is going to happen almost some 190 years later. Well, it continued on with the first of her six sons. The first son, the second son we read about. It. I won't read about the other four. They died very in a very similar way. The mother was most was the most amazing. She was the most amazing one of them all. She deserves a special place in her memory. Although she saw her seven sons die in a single day, she endured it with great courage because she trusted in the Lord. What a woman, how brave, how courageous. She had chutzpah, an aggressive bravery. She combined womanly emotion with manly courage and spoke words of encouragement to each of her sons in Hebrew, in their native language. I do not know how your life began in my womb, she would say. I was not the one who gave you life and breath and put together each part of your body. It was God who did it. God who created the universe, the human race and all that exists. He is merciful and he will give you back life and breath again because you love his laws more than you love yourself. Antiochus was sure that the mother was making fun of him. (laughs) Why? He didn't speak Hebrew. The mother was speaking Hebrew to her sons. And he was thinking that she was making fun of him. So he did his best to convince her, to convince the youngest son, this is the last one, to abandon the traditions of his ancestors. He promised not only to make the boy, rich and famous, but to place him in a position of authority and to give him the title, friend of the king. But the boy paid no attention to him. So King Antiochus tried to persuade the boy's mother to talk to him into saving his life. And after much persuasion, she agreed to do so. And this is this is so cool. Leaning over her son, she fooled the cruel tyrant, tyrant by saying in her native tongue in Hebrew, which Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes does not understand. My son have pity on me. Remember that I carried you in my womb for nine months and nursed you for three years. I have taken care of you and looked after all your needs up to the present day. So I urge you my child to look at the sky and the earth, consider everything you see there and realize that God made it all from nothing just as he made the human race. Don't be afraid of this butcher. Give up your life willingly and prove yourself worthy of your brothers so that by God's mercy, I may receive you back with them in the resurrection. Before she could finish speaking, the boy said, now this is, just, I mean, this kid was really on fire. He's on fire for God, on fire for the Lord, his, his word. And he says, King Antiochus, what are you waiting for? I refuse to obey your orders. I only obey the commands in the Torah which Moses gave to our ancestors. You have thought up all kinds of cruel things to do to our people, but you won't escape the punishment that God has in store for you. It is true that our living Lord is angry with us and is making us suffer because of our sins in order to correct and discipline us. But this will last only a short while, for we are still his servants and he will forgive us. But you are the cruelest and most disgusting thing that ever lived. So don't fool yourself with illusions of greatness while you punish God's people. There is no way for you to escape punishment at the hands of the almighty and all-seeing God. My brothers suffered briefly because of our faithfulness to God's covenant, but now they have entered an eternal life. But you will fall under God's judgment and be punished as you deserve for your arrogance. I now give up my body and my life for the laws of our ancestors, just as my brothers did. But I also beg God to show mercy to his people quickly and to torture you until you are forced to acknowledge that he alone is God. May by brothers and I be the last to suffer the anger of a mighty God which he has justly brought our entire nation or upon our entire nation these words of ridicule made Antiochus so furious that he had the boy tortured even more cruelly than his brothers and so the boy died with absolute trust in the Lord never unfaithful or for a minute last of all, the mother was put to death. But I have said enough about the Jews being tortured and being forced to eat the intestines of sacrificial animals. And so we read about moms who would not give up on their faith and would not turn from God. They circumcised their sons and they faced a cruel deaths. In those days, it was like a curse to be a Jewish girl and pregnant. Because what if it's a boy? And one thing to realize is Jewish girls in those days got married at the age of 12 or 13 or 14. These were kids, young girls, 13, 14, 15 years old, Married, in a godly marriage, becoming pregnant, and then asking, what if it's a boy? So we return to the Mount of Olives. And someplace up there, Jesus is teaching his disciples, as we read earlier in Matthew 24, And the question is, what did his disciples hear? What did they see? What did they understand? Remember the books of Maccabees, both 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. Things that I'm reading today were available to them. They were written 100 years before. And Jesus says, and woe to them, meaning women, that are with child. (laughs) Especially a male child. And that gives suck. The child has been born in those days. What did they hear? What did they think of when they heard Jesus' words? Once again, Jesus seems to be connecting the days before his return that those days will be like the days of the Maccabees? The days when Jewish moms were killed because they circumcised their sons. Can you imagine what it would have been like for a Jewish girl, 12 or 13, married, pregnant, and wondering, what if it's just my son? And once again, Jesus has made the connection. And so we light the fourth candle. We remember Jesus's words that before his days come, may you not be pregnant or have a child nursing at that time. And we remember also what happened to young mothers in Israel in the early second century BC, the moms who wouldn't give up. Baruch Ata Arnai Elohenu Melach HaHolam Ashir Kitchenu Be'Mitzvotav Venatan Lanu Yeshua Adonenu Mashienu HaHor HaHolam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God and King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and given us Yeshua. Give it as Jesus our Lord, our savior, the light of the world. When I read about Hannah and her seven sons and the bravery of those boys, I don't even know how old the oldest one was, I think about the expression holding a candle to somebody. I am not fit to hold a candle to Hannah. I am not fit to hold a candle to any one of those boys, the seven brothers, especially that young guy. There are many today that teach about the rapture and about how the church is going to escape at the time of the tribulation. And I ask myself, this is just me, how do I deserve the rapture? When I compare myself to those seven boys, when I compare myself to Hannah or any one of those mothers who would not Who would not disobey God but circumcised their sons, and many of them caught, persecuted, tortured, and martyred, and their boys, and and their boys too, hung around their neck. How have I suffered? I have not suffered like anything like Hannah. Well, those seven boys are the thousands upon thousands of Jewish martyrs in those days. What's so special about us? What's so special about Christians today that we're going to be raptured when I compare all of the history of the Bible? How does the church deserve the rapture? We're in a culture where there have been 60 million babies murdered since 1973 in the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. 60 million. And one of the things in Proverbs, God says, there's a seven things that he hates. And one of those things that he hates is the suffering of the helpless. A baby in the womb is helpless. And this is what God hates. And we're in a society where this has happened. how do we deserve the rapture? One rabbi taught, he was teaching his disciples, and he said, definitely repent the day before you die. And his disciples were thinking about that statement. And they asked their rabbi a question, Rabbi, how can you repent one day before you die when you don't even know the day you're going to die? And the rabbi said, that's the point. In other words, repent continually. The rapture, I say Rather than focus in on the rapture, we should focus on repentance. And focus in on saying, oh God, how? How can we continue to allow the death of babies in the womb? How can we allow it to continue? We can't stop it legally. And maybe there was ways through love and compassion and through prayer. So we're in the season of light. Hanukkah, the festival of light and Christmas coming at the same time as Hanukkah, which is the remembrance of the coming of the light of the world. And in the season of light, let us repent before God and say, oh Lord, give us the faith of Hannah. Oh Lord, give us the faith of her seven sons. Give us the faith of the many of those young mothers who would not give up on their walk with you, oh Lord our God. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. And may he bless you with his shalom.